Well, so so here's here's something that was really interesting. I realized that I changed my name for my husband. I gave up a portion of my my body, or I gave up my body and was willing to give up my personhood for for my son. I chose to be an entity that does would do anything for this kid. And and then you take it like just a half step further and you're like, I'm willing to do anything for them. I'm willing to do anything for myself. And if that's not God, then what is? You know, like I will do anything and I will look in the mirror and look in my own eyes. And I tell people, I encourage people, look in your own eyes and be like, I will do anything for you. I will do anything for you. And like that affirmation right there, there's 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 not much after that, you know? So yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's how I became Goddess Erica. <laughs> That was my guest for today, Goddess Erica. Goddess Erica is an orgasmic doula specializing in personal empowerment and pleasure-centered childbirth. With a mission of normalizing kink, gender identity, polyamory, and radical self-love, her creative services agency offers group workshops, individual coaching, and marketing support for sex-positive businesses. To find out more information on her body of work and services, visit yesgoddesserica.com. So today I'm talking to Goddess Erica, who I met in Chicago freaking years ago when we were both starting out as newbie pro-doms um, and figuring out what we wanted to do in that space. And Goddess Erica, I'm so excited that you've had an entire journey past that point. <laughs> <laughs> But I would love to start at the beginning and and catch people up so that we we really understand who you are and and where you've evolved to. Um, how do you want to just? Can you just start with a brief introduction of who you are? You know, and it's funny because I'm I'm like eyeballing my my room because I oh. just wrote down like my latest elevator pitch. I feel like oh, I'm funny. always rewriting this thing. Yeah, um, yeah. But I am an orgasmic doula. And I help uh, individuals, couples, and also businesses that are like sex positive to connect them to evidence-based pathways towards pleasure that mm. uh, allow you to big picture, liberate yourself, <laughs> small <laughs> picture, to experience pleasure in, in spaces and uh, situations where Pleasure is often the the very last thing on your mind, mm -hmm. um, and so mm -hmm. I help to teach people to reframe their their thinking and their behaviors and the the way that they are choosing who is supporting them in very important situations, so that they can cultivate uh, experiences that feel more adjacent to orgasms than to pain. This is amazing, and so for the audience. When I was looking up Goddess Erica's site, you know, and seeing where it's evolved, like there is this specific thrill of like seeing someone like move into a space that needed presence, you know. So this interview is really going to be about how Goddess Erica got there and moving us along with it and then what it is and what it's become. So I'm, I'm super excited because I don't know a lot of the story. But um, so start at the beginning, like what? You you talk a little bit about your on your site about 
your childhood. What are your spiritual roots? Uh, so my spiritual roots. So I, I was raised in, in Chicago in a Baptist family. My grandmother came here from the South when she was about a teenager. So probably mm. in the, the 50s. And being a Chicago Southern Baptist kid raised in a church. My my grandmother was an ordained minister. Church was just part of my my life. And there was a particular, I don't want to call it an obsession, but there was a, a particular hyper focus on on like religion and studying the Bible and um, and it was also kind of mixed with this focus on excellence as well. Mm-hmm. And so it it created a little bit of a an interesting space for me growing up, probably because my family was also incredibly matriarchal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, but that's actually pretty normal, having a, a, a matriarchal uh, family because of the way that like systemically, Black families have been broken up by, you know, like the legal system and, um, you know, like job opportunities and things like that. But growing up in a, a space where, you know, I have this powerful woman who exists in this religious space teaching me about right and wrong and, and good and bad, like it infuses you with a, a way of an- analyzing the, the world. Um, and then you combine that with the excellence. So I'm meandering a little bit, but because of the way that my grandmother juxtaposed excellence and studying the Bible, I learned to make connections between things and to question things, which actually became my, the demise of my relationship to Christianity, Mm -hmm. um, because, um, when I was very, very young, we would go to church and, you know, our family was poor and the church we went to was poor. It was in like Inglewood, which is like one of the the scariest neighborhoods in, in Chicago, you know, and it, it was, it was scary back then, but it wasn't terrible, but it meant that sometimes at church, they're passing around the collection plate to keep, to literally keep the lights on. Like we're sitting in the dark, you know, and there was this, this sense of, of gratitude, even when going without the sense of, you know, I may not have all the foods that I need, or I may not have the, the money to pay my, my rent for next month, or I may not have this or that, or, you know, the lights may be going off, but I'm so grateful for God's love. I am so grateful. Mm. And that taught me gratitude. Mm. Um, But when it came to looking at what God could do for you, that's when things started to go a little bit sideways for me because there was always this sense of, you know, whatever you need, God's going to provide and it's going to be at a, you know, at the right time. It might not be when you want it, but it's going to be when you need it. And I remember I was probably about like second grade, third grade, something like that. And maybe it was like a a Sunday night to a Monday and I had not done my homework. (laughs) And, you know, so I, I come home from, from church and I get on my knees and I, you know, pray to God and I'm like, can you just do this homework for me? 
<laughs> Can you just do that for me? And I woke up in the morning and the homework was not done. And I was like, I needed that <laughs> right now. There is no other time for this homework to be done. And things just kind of started to unravel from there. You know, I and and not unravel in a in a terrible way. I was, you know, pretty committed to the cause until like pretty late into my my teenage years. But it was the questioning of of the things that I was told. It was whenever I would question something, the way that I was kind of redirected, almost scolded for even asking a question. And that Mm -hmm. seemed to be antithetical to what I was being taught about excellence, which was to question everything. And Mm -hmm. so it, it got to a point where I realized that I felt the depth of, of like spiritual connection in certain experiences, but not others. So sitting and listening to someone kind of tell me what I was doing wrong and what I needed to do better didn't work for me. But hearing the choir sing and hearing that praise and being part of those collective voices when I was singing the choir, seeing my grandmother and the power that she exuded. I knew that there was a power in spirituality. I knew that there was that there was something more. I wasn't convinced that what they were telling me was exactly it. And you know, it would take years and years for me to even come to a point where I would uh, understand divinity and and the divine and and the power of the universe in a way that made sense in connection to growing up Baptist. So, hmm. so hopefully. Wow long. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah. So I'm curious about like the, you were talking about the connection between excellence and questioning everything. Were you taught basically to question everything but God? Yeah. 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 And, okay. You know, looking back on that, it feels a little brainwashy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't think that there was an intentional by my family or by the church or anything. And that's what I, you know, we were talking earlier about like systemic things how like the system kind of bleeds its way into the individuals that you're interacting with and that's how it affects you. Mm -hmm. So. So you started questioning this brainwashing basically what around, how old were you when you started having certain aha moments? You know, I, I don't know if I could put a specific, like the, the big aha um, probably didn't come until well into my 20s, maybe even, you know, 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a almost a, a playfulness that I regarded engaging with the space. And maybe it's because my uh, younger sister, she's 13 months younger than me. And so we've just kind of been best friends for our entire lives experienced a lot of the same things, obviously through through very different lenses, but through experiencing the same things together, you know, we kind of have this this language that we we share. And um, you know, and, and maybe it's a family trait, but we like to kind of like laugh about the hard stuff mm-hmm. and, and giggle about the the absurd and, you know, kind of share little nudges when when something's just like, obviously this doesn't make sense, but we have to play along because this is what we've been trained to do. And so there was always from the the time that I started questioning, you know, what God was actually able to physically do for me. I 
uh, I think that that's when the humor started to kind of bleed into into the and you know that kind of wears away <laughs> at the resolve of anything over time. And then you just start to see a little bit of the absurdity, and you accept it because you know there's not a lot of people that you can talk to about it. You know, bringing up that those things again gets shut down, or you're kind of like finger wagged at. And you know, one of the things that happened over the the pandemic or after the the pandemic kind of shut everything down and people started kind of reevaluating their lives is I had my son evaluated for ADHD. And in doing his assessment, as I'm answering the questions for him, I was answering the questions for myself. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized that um, I'm pretty neurodivergent myself and that it it made sense all of these things that I was questioning and that like I had to kind of mask and, you know, play the part to, to be safe or to, you know, not be uh, called out that, you know, once I got to a place where I no longer needed to depend on those people for, for anything, then I was able to actually be more clear um, and direct about what I did not think made sense. So it was a like a, a protective mechanism when I was younger to laugh about it and to see the absurdity in it. And then in my adulthood and having a, a larger sense of autonomy, being able to, you know, for the sake of keeping social mores <laughs> to play along when I need to, but mm-hmm. also when I need to draw my boundaries for myself to be like, I don't actually believe in that. And I don't really want to have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. You know? nice. I've certainly like curtailed certain relationships because of realizing not only the the way that believing certain things can be harmful, but also the way that Christianity has been used for for Black people in, in the United States to strip away our culture and to make us more compliant and docile. And, you know, when I, I think about it that way, I don't feel particularly compelled to want to take on my oppressor's line of thinking when it comes to who I am as a spiritual being. And I would much rather trust myself, Mm. which I can touch on later when it comes to my work, because that also comes through in my work with like teaching people how to trust themselves and trust the the voice and the the ancestral knowledge mm-hmm. that they they have because we have collectively been kind of brainwashed into believing that we shouldn't trust ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to get there. So, all right, to try to quickly summarize, <laughs> I, I think where we are. <laughs> you grew up you grew up learning the question basically everything but God and mm-hmm. starting to slowly realize the absurdity of it. I, and I love that your sister was a, a help with that, like somebody that you could bounce things off of and in particular this, this humorous way. I, I'm curious, like in your 20s and early 30s, I totally get that, that it takes a while to start like <laughs> really being like, wait a minute, where did pleasure come from or when did pleasure become important? Oh, my God. Uh Okay, so I really want to like, I just I need to have this like out in the world somewhere because it's something that I've been realizing about myself. And I might even start it even earlier than that. So okay, so this might I'm going to try and and be concise with it. So 
one of my earliest memories of being shamed about my sexuality or about sexuality in general came from a, a babysitter. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a woman that lived next door to us in the like apartment building that we lived in. Um, and after school, my sister and I would go um, and sit with her until my mom came home from, from work. And she was she was a, a perfectly nice lady. Um, but one day after after school, when I had had gym class and they taught us how to do like the legs wide and then you like reach to one side and then you reach to the other side. And so I come back and I, you know, I was probably like, you know, second grade, maybe first, something like that. And I come and I sit on her living room rug and I like spread my legs wide and, you know, and she comes in and she is incensed at me, like a seven-year-old. And she's like, don't do that. You shouldn't have your legs spread open. That's incredibly inappropriate. And blah, 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 blah. And, wow. and that was, <laughs> I'm like, what did I do? Yeah. You know, and as a girl, as a, as a, a little black girl, growing up in, in Baptist church, being your knees closed and having your skirts not be too short and having tights on when you have on, or stockings when you have on, you know, don't have your legs bare. Um, mm-hmm. It took me into my twenties to be able to like go around my grandmother without tights on, <laughs> you know? And, you know, so there, there was that part of it. And then there was the, in high school realizing or not realizing um components of my sexuality when it came to being polyamorous and mm-hmm. how like that had showed up back then. I had this boyfriend who like I was secretly dating because I wasn't supposed to have boyfriends because <laughs> Baptist church uh, and not every Baptist kid is like that. But like in my family, we weren't supposed to date until like after high school or something like that. I don't know because I didn't really <laughs> I, I kind of stuck around, but I, I had this boyfriend and um I was in love with him. He was fantastic. He was cute. He was smart. He was, you know, like we like went to what together well, like the making out was fun. Like he wasn't trying to push anything. It was fantastic. And then I also had a best friend and he was fun and he was funny. And we had this weird dynamic where we would like get jealous whenever one of us was dating another person. And, you know, one day I just decided to tell my boyfriend like, Hey, I'm, I'm in love with, with my best friend thinking that like the honesty would like spur a conversation would like, you know, like how do we figure this out? Something, you know, like, I just want to be honest. And he dumped me on the spot and I was heartbroken. And from that point, my trajectory with my sexuality, when it came to like the way I paired with other people, I always felt like the other girl or like Mm. the girl that like people wanted to like go out with, but not actually like have be their girlfriend. And I also had these ideas about like, you know, back in the 90s, they didn't really have a lot of words for it, but like being a player was a thing, you know, and I didn't want to be like a player where I was cheating on people, but I wanted to be like, hey, I've got this guy that that like handles this part of my personality and this guy that handles that and this guy that handles like the uh uh-uh, you know, and people were like, that's a hoe. And I'm like, am I? (laughs) You know? and so I, I think that like the the sexual like evo- like you have to kind of tell the whole story, right? Mm-hmm. 
And then in my 20s, I had a early relationship that was abusive where uh, he was incredibly jealous of my male best friend who was mm-hmm. gay. And after ending that relationship, I decided that I was never going to date another person who didn't understand being able to have a close relationship with someone of the opposite sex. Yeah, yeah. And then I I met my husband and he was best friends with his ex-girlfriend and he was he was clearly still like in love with her. But like I I feel like I was kind of made to be polyamorous a little bit because I I saw that and I was like, I'm not intimidated by that. Like if where they were supposed to be together, they would already be together. Like, why would that intimidate me? And also, like, I am fantastic. <laughs> like, I do not feel intimidated at all. But because of that, like, comfort and openness in our relationship, it actually led to us having almost a decade of of being monogamous, but being very open about, like, our attraction to other people and, you know, being able to just talk about our feelings and and what we desired without actually having to act on them was mm-hmm. this really great space to grow in. And I don't, I, I hope I'm not getting off on too much of a tangent. I hope I'm still on, on task. No, I love this. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but when I married my husband, you know, you do like the wedding video with like the music and stuff. And um, I had my videographer put a song to the the wedding video that was a really great way to kind of apply a synopsis to what my relationship with my husband did for my understanding of myself sexually and mm. as a goddess. And it's a Gavin DeGraw. I don't even know what his actual hit song was. He had like a hit song. This song okay. was not it. It was a B-side or something called I Have You to Thank. Um, and I, I uh, implore you to look it up when you have an opportunity. But basically, the idea is I have you to thank for making me so hard to please because you've given me something, something, love that's so good um, that no one can hold uh, a flame to, to you, basically. And what that did for what I understand from... Uh, what I'm willing to accept in other relationships. So years later, we opened our relationship and um, started dating polyamorously. And um, I mean, I I still am a highly sexual person, but I'm picky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm very picky, you know. And I don't want to say that he gave me the standards, but he helped me get to a point where I realized that like my low bar is worship. <laughs> So, so yeah. Wow. Okay. So I love that. Um, I love that journey so much. And I just want you to keep going. Like when you talk about the low bar being worship and, and you're really owning and claiming your goddess status, what does that mean on a practical level? Like for, for your relationships and how you move in the world? It's really interestingly transformational, and it's funny because I'm I'm constantly finding new new depths to it and new ways where I can use that philosophy to like open myself to like understanding interactions and dynamics between myself and other spaces that I exist in. Um, 
one of the the things that is interesting about like claiming goddesshood is it came it came after being a mom honestly mm-hmm. like so there's there's a, a portion of it that's like my husband has like treated me so well that like i i can't <laughs> i can't accept anything better or anything anything less than that but when i was pregnant with my son being the the neurodivergent kid who like picks up on all of the little details and cues without even like recognizing it i recognized that there was a, a huge possibility that i was going to lose portion of my personhood in order to become a mother mm-hmm. i knew that i was going to have to sacrifice not just my time but my attention my mm-hmm. like my drive my ambitions that my body was going to to change, that I wasn't going to be as desirable from a youthful, tucked up body kind of standpoint. Mm-hmm. And and I I didn't I don't want to say I resigned myself to it, but I accepted it. I I was like, this is Green's fee for for this human that I am choosing to like give everything to. You know, I I saw being in labor and giving birth as a a proving ground for for how much I was willing to sacrifice for this this other human being. It was kind of like my my moment on the cross, you know, mm-hmm. like I am willing to hurt, to mm-hmm. hurt, to almost die in order for you to exist. And so I didn't want to have any pain medicine. I didn't want like I wanted to feel it. I wanted to be in it. But I was expecting pain because no one had told me that like there was another way to think about it. I was expecting to like go through it to, you know, and you know, and my my birth experience, my my pregnancy was actually really easy. He was he's he is an easy kid. He continues to be an easy kid. But my pregnancy was super easy. Like my my labor was, you know, it was intense and there were moments where I felt that my agency was either ignored or downplayed by the system. I don't even want to be like that. That nurse was really, you know, cause it, it wasn't anything like that, but you know, there were, there was like a moment where, you know, they encouraged me to, to be on uh, Pitocin, which is a drug that, induces uh, contractions is actually the uh, synthetic version of the oxytocin that your body produces mm. when you're um, in labor. And they were slowly increasing it. And I learned later that they had uh, started coming in and telling my support people not to tell me that they were increasing it because I couldn't handle it. There were lots of, of things that weren't <laughs> that weren't what I expected or hoped it to be, but all mm-hmm. things told, I like it was, you know, I ended up having a C-section. It wasn't what I wanted. It was a, a tough experience, but having people in the room who supported me and and got like I got through it with minimal trauma considering what could potentially happen and, and what other stories you know have been. Um but after, you know, going through all of that, after, you know, I, I have this like new person in my my arms and, you know, I'm bonding with him over the the months, um, <laughs> the months after giving birth. And I began to realize that I was still myself, mm. that mm-hmm. I, I hadn't, that I was still the same baddie. <laughs> 
that I was before, you know, and, you know, it, and it wasn't, I, I think that he inspired me to do hard things that I hadn't been inspired to do up mm. until that point. But I think that he also was a, a catalyst in helping me see that I, I didn't care what other people thought about what I chose for myself or what I was doing or like how I existed because I had already, I had already done all the escalator stuff and like, and, and that seems kind of superficial and maybe it is, but you know, like I'd, I'd married the husband and, you know, bought the house and had the kid all in order, you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and, and was raising the kid and doing the thing. And at that point I was like, can't nobody tell me shit. Like, what are you like I, I get to call the shots, mm. <laughs> you know, and it mm. was, it was all curtains from there. <laughs> so, you know, from, from there, um, you know, years later when my son was a little bit older and my, my husband opened, we opened our, our relationship and we started kind of dabbling. First we dabbled with swinging and it, it kind of came about because I confessed to him one day that like, I wanted to like see him with another person. But what came out of that conversation when we dug a little bit deeper is that I also wanted the opportunity to be like worshipped by two men. Mm -hmm. And in the past, like the idea of a three way with two men sounded so dangerous, you know, because, you know, the porn that I was watching in the 90s and the early 2000s was like three way with two guys was like someone getting double teamed by two guys just, you know, broing out on the the object that they are fucking together. And that was not the experience that I wanted. I wanted something softer and more affirming and more like empowering. Yeah. Um, and so the idea of being worshipped was, was like this thing that we played around with. And very quickly we realized that swinging wasn't for us. And when we started like dating separately, polyamorously, I started um, entering spaces and, um, and like dabbling in, in kink. And so I had to like make a name for myself. Uh, so I chose goddess Erica, but as I'm exploring kink, as I'm exploring, like what it means to like demand excellence from, from people who are not my husband, when I was exploring, like what I, it meant to set boundaries for myself to even feel safe. I realized that there was uh, another layer to the depth of of goddesshood because then I started seeing glimmers of that spirituality that I had seen mm -hmm. earlier in my life where I realized that well so so here's here's something that was really interesting I realized that I changed my name for my husband you know and it was out of a romantic notion my maiden name is actually bitchin <laughs> it's not bitchin but like it, it, it's a fantastic last name and yeah. I gave it up for for him he's got a great last name too it's great but like you know, like that was, that was a, that was a gift. I, I gave up a portion of my, my body or I gave up my body and was willing to give up my personhood for, for my son. I chose to be an entity that does what do anything for this kid. And, and then you take it like just a half step further and you're like, I'm willing to do anything for them. I'm willing to do anything for myself. And if that's mm -hmm. not God, then what is? 
You know, like I will do anything and I will look in the mirror and look in my own eyes. And I tell people, I encourage people, look in your own eyes and be like, I will do anything for you. I will do anything for you. And like that affirmation right there, like there's, there's, there's not much after that, you know? So yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's how I became goddess Erica. <laughs> that's amazing. So then in prodoming, like, was that just another way of achieving worship or was that also a way of like, I feel like so many of my clients that were interested in that, there was something so fulfilling for them to be able to worship. So can you talk about that aspect of it? Yeah. So what's, what was interesting about being a, like, it wasn't about worship or it isn't about being worshiped as I say. It isn't about being worshipped. It is, I want to like choose my words very carefully, (laughs) but it is, it's less about receiving the, the worship of another person or like, it's less about demanding that someone do that for me Mm -hmm. and more about the meeting in the middle of, I want to offer this to you and I want to receive it. It It's a lot more, it's a lot softer than domination when you look at it from a, like from the outside, the, 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 the boilerplate idea of what it is. There's, there's a softness to it. Um, I don't, I don't believe in coercion or force. And I, you know, I say very loudly, I'm not a a brat tamer. And that's, you know, like that's totally valid. But the idea of uh, forcing another person to, to worship me doesn't feel fulfilling because I don't, I don't get anything out of someone doing something that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. I get satisfaction out of someone wanting something that I mutually want to receive. And it doesn't mean that I want to receive that from from everyone. And in a a, a pro-doming situation, um, there's a lot more opportunity for vulnerability to to unfurl in the silence than in the activity and so in worship it's actually an opportunity to um to kind of descend into a meditative state so it's it's also more of a a meditation than um than you giving me something that i like need to consume it's yeah so it's it's not so much that like I need someone to validate that I am, you know, this divine being. I don't need anybody to tell me what I am. Um, but if you want to let me know, <laughs> you know, like I, I'm not going to stop you from saying it, you know. So, um, you know, so it, it's, it's a little bit of, it, it feels more mutual. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, it's from my experience, it's very personal about what the other person gets out of being submissive or, mm-hmm. or wanting to, to worship somebody else. And it's not, uh, it doesn't make a person smaller in no. any way. No, 
No, it, it actually, I think, and I, I say this often and, and on as many platforms as I possibly can, I absolutely love people who take on the role of submission because I couldn't do it, <laughs> you know? And, and honestly, I say that and I realize that they're like, because everything is connected, even in our non-kinky and non-kinky spaces, there's a level of, of giving and taking and submitting and dominating that happens even if we don't have words to actually describe it that way. Um, but I think that people who choose it um, actively and in a space where you are very specifically like submitting to someone, I think that there is so much power in being in that and choosing to be in that position because you have to know who you are. There, especially for for people who um, identify as men, mm-hmm. when um, someone who is expected to like take on the the hardness and the the controlling uh, ideas that come with this toxic idea of of masculinity, when you're able to to let go of that and to be taken for a ride to to receive what is given to you without making additional demands. I honestly feel like it's why I like I don't really have a lot of people who make it through my filter when it comes to like doming. And it's because it requires a very specific type of emotional intelligence. You really have to let go of, you know, and you also have to be like ready to be kind of not disappointed isn't the right word to not get what you were expecting to yeah. to get something much more and 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 probably very different from what you were expecting because kink and bdsm is such a broad term and because it's such a broad term i feel like oftentimes people only see the tip of that iceberg. And there's so much depth to the way, especially because everything can kind of be, be seen, th- like everything in life can be seen through through a lens of, of domination and submission if you look hard enough and maybe not even that hard. But the, underneath that, that iceberg, there's so much depth and there's so many different ways of expressing and exploring and connecting and feeling energy exchange and feeling the release of emotions and like inner child work, somatic Mm -hmm. work. Like it's, it's all things that you usually people who are looking to be dominated aren't expecting that, but you know, Mm -hmm. it, I think that it's, it's a, a variant of it that can be incredibly healing and can be incredibly educational for people who are trying to learn about themselves, trying to learn about how to engage with other people, trying to learn how to be still. You you had your son, you discovered like whole new levels of your badassery. You, <laughs> um, you started to explore more with your husband in really fun ways of, of um, both that interpersonal <laughs> fun play and swinging and all these different things. And then the new discoveries of what it means to, to own your goddessness, to be worshiped 
you start offering that as a service very, mm -hmm. very selectively to others and discovering now new dynamics of, of what it means for the, the submissive or the worshiper. And where do we go from there? Can I say I want to change the world? Yeah, right? <laughs> That's I part mean, of the claiming that God is that status. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so so I want to be very, very clear about what it means when I call myself a goddess. And I get pushback. It's usually from men mm -hmm. <laughs> who question whether they feel comfortable calling me goddess. And I am not um, someone who thinks that I lord over other people. I don't think that I am better than any person. I, okay, so let me, let me dial that back just a little bit. Even though I don't expect other people to call me goddess or to, to call, to see me as someone that they are worshiping as a goddess, when you meet someone who has a doctor in front of their, their name, even if they're not your doctor, <laughs> you know, like you're still going to respect their, their name. You're going to respect their, their title. And yes, there is a, a body that bestows that title onto them, but who's to say that the body that bestowed this title onto me isn't just as valid. And also when I call myself a goddess, it is in recognition of the fact that I am part of the universe experiencing itself and that every single person, every single living being, every single living thing on this planet and the universe is, is just a portion of, of the divine experiencing in itself. And with that, I, when I say that, that I am a goddess, I'm actually recognizing the divinity in you. And so mm. oftentimes at the end of workshops or, or things that I, I do in public, I will say my divinity recognizes yours because mm -hmm. it is my way of acknowledging that, yes, I'm goddess Erica, but if you choose to call yourself Lord Jera, like I will call you Lord Jera, you know, like, yeah, and, and yeah. It, it's, it's the same thing with pronouns. My pronouns are we, us, are. And I also accept she because we, us, are isn't about my gender so much as it is about me wanting to acknowledge that I don't believe that that gender existed as a social construct that is used to oppress people and to place hierarchy. And mm -hmm. I don't believe in hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And so when I say that my pronouns are we and us, it's because when you say we, you are applying a level of empathy to the experience that I'm experiencing because we're both experiencing, even if it's only coming through my eyes. And so, yeah, I don't know if I just like got off on a tangent with that, but like, I want to, I want to change the world. And it begins with people recognizing their, their divinity and recognizing the power that they have to change their world and change their life. And this isn't love and light. This isn't like, think happy thoughts. This is like, get the work done. Like you want this thing to happen? Like, what are you willing to do to do it? Like, what, what are you willing to break to, you know, cause I, I, I will break arms and legs for my kid. And that means that I should also be willing to break arms and legs for myself, you know? And so it, it's something that comes through in my personal life it comes through in the way that I am parenting. Like I said, I don't believe in, in hierarchy. 
And so it's even changed the way that I parent. Gentle parenting is a, is a term that's like going around right now. But I honestly believe that like we need to be following the, the lead of, of our children and that we should be trusting and honoring what it is that they say to us about who they are in the moment, at any given moment, whether that changes or not, and that we shouldn't be applying our own expectations. One of the things that I like to, to tell my kid is that his success is not dependent on my approval. Mm-hmm. Um, That's great. And, you know, I see myself as parenting a smaller version of myself when yeah. I'm parenting him. I see myself as parenting an older version of myself when I'm healing old wounds with my mother and, you know, having similar conversations, you know, like when I, when I say that to him, I recognize that maybe one day down my bloodline, maybe, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that, that knowledge or that understanding will be, you know, won't even have to be articulated. You know, it's the, the the things that I am seeing transform in my personal life and in the way that I parent are also coming through in the way that I do my business. Mm-hmm. I, I've created this, this agency that is designed to celebrate and focus on pleasure without shame or fear. And it's, it's taken a, a long journey for me to get comfortable with walking the line between being incredibly sexual and mm-hmm. and being incredibly professional because in corporate spaces that's not flying you know and and also even just as a professional walking that line and and creating boundaries for myself with with clients you know just because i am am talking about sex and i'm being overtly sexual and we're you know we're practicing sexual things and and the exercises that we're using that is i'm still a professional you know and the spaces that i've created through my my business are designed to take that idea and you know and to heal that little girl that was sitting on a rug in in second grade doing stretches and being shamed by a woman who was obviously shamed for that herself at some point you know right. and so in seeing the empathy between we i can see my shame in hers i i could go on and on but you know the the crux of of what i'm doing with my work is 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 healing is self-actualization. It's it's liberation. And that is coming through, whether it's through birth support as, as a doula, whether it's through offering training. Um, I have a training program called Orgasmic Birth Training that is about like reaching for the stars. Whether you have an orgasm or not, it's about like being able to clear the bar that is incredibly low right now when it comes to like healthcare and healthcare standards for, for birthing bodies. The, the healthcare system just isn't designed for female bodies. It is designed to accommodate female bodies, but it is not designed to truly support us. And so it being able to like create 
methods and, and practices for yourself to take into spaces that may be inherently harmful, whether that's a birth mm. space, whether that's a business space, whether that is in a relationship, I'm not saying the relationship has to be harmful, but whether that's in negotiating something new for your relationship, whether it's in navigating towards death. I also uh, have a program that I just started called Orgasmic Death that is kind of a sister to orgasmic life, which is about looking into the shadows of of our existence, the things that are super scary. Death is scary, but we we are all going to experience it. You know, uh, it's about looking into the shadows of ourselves, the things that we don't like about ourselves or that we're so ashamed of. Imagine giving that space in yourself love and unconditional love and empathy and care and, you know, like forgiveness. Imagine looking into your fear of, of dying and recognizing that if your time is so limited, then it's time to like start making some some moves. I've realized over the last few years that when you are following your path and you're choosing yourself, not selfishly at the expense of other people, but truly genuinely choosing yourself, even if that means that someone's feelings are hurt or someone's inconvenienced or, you know, when you can consistently choose that path that everything starts to coalesce and start to make sense. So five years ago, I, I quit my job and I went on this, this journey to figure out who I was and, and what I was in this space. And I initially was just going to be a doula and I was going to like, mm -hmm. you know, pro dom on the side for some extra cash or whatever. And then I realized that like, I didn't want to, uh, to be taking orders because when you pro dom, there's a, a little bit of, you know, like here's the menu and now I got to like do the dance for you. It was, it felt less organic. And uh, as a doula, I realized that what I was planning to offer was not nearly um, encompassing when it came to me also wanting to let go of the burden of feeling shamed sexually from a, mm. a professional standpoint, um, even from an interpersonal standpoint, because it was also at that time that my husband and I were starting to come out as polyamorous. Like we had gotten into these deep, meaningful relationships that like we didn't want to no longer, you know, not talk about in, in our, our spaces. You know, so like all of these transformations are happening. You know, I have always been really death positive and death curious, but like I wasn't thinking about that when I was building my, my doula business. You know, I was thinking, oh, I could probably like coach people, but how does that have anything to do with, with, uh, with birth? Hmm. And, you know, after choosing the, the things that feel good and, and feel fulfilling and, and, and having no regrets for the, the choices that I made that maybe weren't as aligned to myself, because I still learned from those things. I still learned that I, I, this is the one, this is the path. After all of that, I've created this business that is, is in support of, of birth and life and death and everything in between. And that it is a, a mission-based uh, business that is about serving people and helping people to be more free in, in spaces that can be particularly oppressive to people at certain intersections, you know, because 
if I can make the outcomes or help make the outcomes better for the people who have the let the least ideal outcomes, then that means that everybody's winning, you know? So that's my, that's my goal. <laughs> big goal. Big goal. Big I mean, goals. Big. Yeah. It's, it, it sounds, I, you know, I tell people sometimes and I'm like, I'm going to sound insane, but I want to change the world. I want to like, <laughs> I want my business to be so big that I can petition Congress. Mm -hmm. you no, know, like I want to be that big. You know, I want to, you know, be able to support people's livelihoods fairly, you know, because it is things that I was not able to do or that were very hard won. I shouldn't say that I wasn't able mm -hmm. to do it. I, you know, I, I think I did pretty, pretty nicely for myself and, and how I progressed in my career, but like I... It, it was so hard one and it was, yeah. it was such a long journey before I was even paid fairly. And who knows, even then, if, if I was, you know, I'm, I am all about unions for all and salary transparency as well. So. <laughs> what does orgasmic mean to you? You know, that's actually a, a really great question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. So thank oh, you. Oh, funny. <laughs> uh, because I, I think it's it's something that is is necessary to be, it, like it needs to be explored and kind of elaborated on. I think orgasmic to me is, it is the pinnacle of pleasure. It almost reminds me of what is that that painting on the the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel where <laughs> uh, God's touching Adam's fingertip? You know, like it feels like touching God. And orgasmic does not have to exist in a exclusively sexual space. I think that orgasms are that there, there are signs of orgasms and you can start to see that like other things that we experience are kind of orgasms in their own right. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's usually a physio physiological component to it, right? There's usually like involuntary <laughs> uh, movements, perhaps. There's a flood of chemicals. There's almost like a sense of euphoria. There's also like maybe a sense of, of loss of control. But if I were to describe that, that's also laughter, mm -hmm. you know, there's also a release that's, that's crying. So we, we're experiencing orgasms in all of these different ways that we aren't calling orgasms, but it's, it's really about like releasing the emotions. And mm -hmm. sometimes that emotion is pleasure. And sometimes that emotion is sadness. And sometimes that emotion is an overstimulation of your, your nerves, you know, but it's, it's still this, this orgasmic build. And I think that in the right spaces, even something like crying, it's not necessarily that it's tied to pleasure. Although I sometimes cry when I'm, I'm happy, people do that, but that it's, it's the, the stripping away of all of the, the noise. It almost feels like a meditative state. You know, if you allow yourself to to be in that, if you allow yourself to not fight against whatever it is that you're feeling, it, which is it, and it sounds scary, but grief is 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 orgasmic. It's, it's mm -hmm. an orgasm. You know, like there's you you can't control that. You know, like it happens, and you know, just like when you're you know popping one off, like yeah, you know, like it's coming, and there's nothing you can do about it. 
And when we think about all of those different ways that we're experiencing different types of emotions in these orgasmic ways, we can then start to think about ways to create safe spaces and safe uh, supports for ourselves when we know that we're going to be in those situations and in those like uh, uh, scenarios. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it starts to help. Oh, that's the word. When you're thinking about what it means to have an orgasmic birth and an orgasmic death, it, it gives new meaning or layers, right? Kind of contextualizes it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. When I, when I publish these, I usually do like sort of a, a little thought piece on Substack that mm-hmm. brings out certain themes or trends that we've talked about. And mm-hmm. I talked about it being orgasmic birth since that's really your focus right now. But I think that I can't not go with worship as the low bar. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, and, and I like, yes, please, let's publish that because I want someone to read that and be like, yes, I think that that like, I want someone else to choose that for themselves. I want yeah. lots of someone else to choose that for themselves. Yeah, I. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. It's I, you know, it's funny. So I, I have, is it okay if I like read a little something? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to read it because I don't know how to like segue it in and I don't want to necessarily like ad lib it because it's a thought. So when you reached out to me for this interview, Mm -hmm. I like looked at some of your stuff. You're an amazing storyteller. You're like, Oh, thank you. Your platform is fantastic. And I'm, I'm, it's such an honor to be here. So thank you for, for having me. Um, and I had written something like just a, like a, like a, a thought uh, years ago. And I said to myself, and I do this often, I'll like write a note in my like Apple notes or whatever. And I'll be like, I'll get back to it. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And the line was storytellers inform the collective consciousness. Mm. And, you know, if you think about it, what we know about history is not just through the history books, but it's also through the stories and the pieces that people were writing. It's the stuff that you're writing. It's the stuff that, that I'm writing right now. Like we are, we're, we're shaping history. Um, and so as a writer trained in swaying public mindsets, because I worked in advertising in my past life, um, it is my duty to the resistance of oppression to craft a better story. Mm because what we tell ourselves is our truth. My mission is to convince more people that we deserve better. And so I I go on and I say that every time I've gone through a coaching program, I I have gone through a handful of coaching programs. I think that everyone who is trying to better themselves or or learn something new or, you know, that it's it's really, really um, impactful and useful. And I've had many different types of, of coaches and mentors and the people that like had the the biggest impact whenever I saw like the most amazing growth it was because at some point someone there told me that I was capable of doing that hard thing not that like it wasn't the tool or like the networking opportunities it was it was like the the belief and that is all it takes for us to dig in and make things happen for ourselves because we want to prove people right you know, whether they're telling us that we ain't shit or they're telling us, you know, like there's a part of us that's just like, I kind of agree, you know? So imagine if we were able to do that to ourselves, imagine believing in ourselves entirely. Um, and that's what it means to embody your divinity. There's nothing I can't or won't do for myself. I am the answer 
to all of my prayers. And if that is not God, what is it? And so I like to believe that I help people do hard things for themselves. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I am super excited just to see, I mean, even we met in, I think around 20, 2018, 2019, mm-hmm. and you've come so far, <laughs> you know, in the last like five years. So, so excited to see what the next like five years brings. Yeah. You know? I, yeah. you know, I am excited to see what it brings to the world is changing and, you know, there's all of these opportunities to be afraid, but there's also all this opportunity to be excited for Mm. what's new it's almost like peering into the darkness of death and Mm. being unafraid of the unknown yeah that's great okay we're gonna end it there (laughs) 